والسلام على رسول الله وعلى اله وصحبه ومن والاه اما بعد so today we will obviously begin surah ar-rahman and as usual we begin by talking about the blessings of the surah what is so special or sacred about this surah and what has been narrated from the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam about this surah so what is the first blessing of surah ar-rahman that all of you should already know so Friday night we went over the famous hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that I said memorize it and you can use it for every single surah in the Qur'an that he divided the Qur'an into four categories instead of the Torah I was given the what? the seventh liwal, right? and instead of the uh, Zabur I was given the Mi'in and instead of the Injil I was given the Mathani Right? And I have been preferred over all the other prophets with the with the Mufassal. Right? This is the famous hadith in uh, Mustad Imam Ahmad. And uh, and therefore this uh, hadith can be used for every single surah in the Quran. <coughs> Some blessing for every single surah in the Quran. Now, our brother says that this comes under the Mathani. Actually, yes, there is one position, but this is not the correct position. Uh, Surat uh, Ar-Rahman comes under the Mufassal and Ibn Mas'ud ta'ala, he considered Surat Ar-Rahman to be the beginning of the Mufassal he considered Surat Ar-Rahman to be the beginning of the Mufassal now this is a more advanced point I'm not going to go too deep into this but just for your information the Sahaba arranged the Quran differently the Surah arrangements were made differently by different Sahaba and our arrangement is the arrangement that Zayd ibn Thabit proposed and was then accepted by the majority of the Sahaba but there were some Sahaba that had other arrangements of the surahs of the Quran and Ibn Mas'ud's arrangement was different than our arrangement and for Ibn Mas'ud Mus'haf he put Surah Ar-Rahman as the first of the Mufassal surahs and therefore this is the beginning of what the Prophet has been preferred with over all the other prophets according to Ibn Mas'ud as for the rest of the scholars what is the beginning of the Mufassal? as for the rest of the scholars what is the beginning of the Mufassal? Qaf Surah Qaf is the beginning of the Mufassal for the rest of the uh, scholars also what has been narrated from the Prophet about Surah Ar-Rahman we learn in Sahih Muslim <coughs> that Ibn Mas'ud said that the Prophet would regularly read Surah Ar-Rahman in his tahajjud along with Surah Al-Najm. By this we mean in one rak'ah he would read Rahman, in another rak'ah he would read Al-Najm. So it was of the regular recitation. Now, regular recitation doesn't mean every single night he would recite it. No. It means that yani it was a common practice. So our Prophet ﷺ would recite Surah Ar-Rahman very frequently in the nights of Tahajjud. So this is yet another blessing, that he would recite Surah Ar-Rahman very commonly. And uh, most of the uh, most of the surah, we don't have narrations of the Prophet reciting them commonly. So this gives some blessings to Surah Ar-Rahman that our Prophet ﷺ would recite it frequently. Also, of the blessings of Surah Ar-Rahman, is that our Prophet 
chose to recite this surah on what is known as Laylat al-Jinn, the night of the jinn. Now pause here, what is the night of the jinn? The night of the jinn is a night in Mecca where Ibn Mas'ud narrates that the Prophet ﷺ disappeared one evening. And the Sahaba spent the entire night looking for him in every house in the haram. And they spent the worst night of their lives because they felt he had been assassinated or he had been kidnapped. They could not find him anywhere. No trace of him was left. And in the morning, the Prophet ﷺ comes walking in from the desert. And so they said, Ya Rasulullah, where were you? We spent the whole night looking for you. So he says, Atani atim min al-jinn. Some of the jinn, they sent a messenger to me, and they told me to go out and meet them. And I preached to them. I basically spent the night with them, and I taught them the affairs they needed to know. Now, the point here is that the Prophet taught them their fiqh, because their fiqh is different than our fiqh, right? They don't do wudu like us. They don't extinguish themselves as they pray to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Okay? They don't. They have other. They have other uh, rulings. They have other rulings besides our rulings. And the Muslim jinns needed to be taught the proper fiqh. And he also told us, for example, I told them that they will find flesh on every bone that we Muslims eat. As long as we say Bismillah, they will find their flesh to eat on that bone. Right. So whenever we eat any meat, we're not supposed to make the bone najis. We're not supposed to make the bone filthy by using it to wash ourselves. In those days, obviously, they used these things for toilet paper. So he said, don't use this to cleanse yourself. Leave it for the jinns to eat, the Muslim jinns to eat. Point is, anyway, that's the Laylat al-Jinn, that the Prophet went out to the night of the jinn, and he even said, showed Ibn Masood, he said, <coughs> he told him, Ibn Masood, come with me. And they went to the desert, and he showed them the traces of their camps. He said, this is the way they were, this is where they lit their fire, this is what they did, this and that. So he showed them the athar, or the traces of the camps of the jinn. So these are the Muslim jinn, so these are the Muslim sahaba of the jinn. Right? So he spent some time with them, and he taught them what they needed to know. Now, we learned from another hadith that the Prophet chose, out of the whole Qur'an, he chose Surah Al-Rahman to teach them directly. Now the rest of the Qur'an they will learn from the Muslims, right? The, 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 the jinn of the Muslims, they interact with the uh, Muslims amongst us in a manner that we don't know. Yani, uh, they might be sitting here taking notes right now, you never know, you know. Uh, even though we asked them to be kind and pay at Maghrib Institute for <laughs> attending a free class here. Uh, that's just a joke by the way, don't come disturb me tonight. No, no, it's just joking. Uh, the point being that the uh, Muslim uh, jinns, and this is uh, true, I'm not just cracking a joke here. The Muslim jinns, they do benefit from circles of knowledge and they do benefit from scholarly activities and they then preach to their fellow jinn. But, uh, and so the rest of the Quran, they will learn it, the rest of the hadith, they will learn it in that manner. But our Prophet directly, he taught them fiqh that we don't need to know. And he taught them directly Surah al-Jinn. No, sorry, Surah al-Jinn. Surah al-Rahman. <laughs> <laughs> Surah Al-Rahman, Surah Al-Jinn. Surah Al-Rahman, he taught them. And how do we know this? There is a hadith in Sunan Al-Tirmidhi, in the Jami' of Al-Tirmidhi, that mentions this. That Jabir ibn Abdullah narrates that once the Prophet recited to them Surah Al-Rahman from beginning to end. The whole Surah he recited upon the Sahaba. Now, by the way, this is yet another blessing because. Very rarely did he just sit and recite the Qur'an, the whole surah, in front of the Sahaba. 
Right, that's uh, very rare that he just sits there and he does tilawah of the whole surah. So this is yet another blessing that he chose Surah Al-Rahman to recite to all of the Sahaba. Then, after he recited the surah, <coughs> he said to them, they remained quiet, and he said to them, I recited on Laylat Al-Jinn Surah Al-Rahman. So he's saying, I recited to them Surah Al-Rahman. And they responded to me better than your response, which was no response. Their response was better than yours, because you didn't do anything. So they said, what was their response, Ya Rasulullah? <clears throat> so he said, every time I said, They responded, La which translates as, We will not reject any of your blessings, O our Lord, for to you is all praise. So every time the Prophet said, The jinns would respond back, None of your blessings will be rejected, O Allah, our Lord. For all praise is to you. And so the Prophet ﷺ said that the jinn responded in a better manner because they answered the rhetorical question every single time that Allah asked. They answered the question and they said, we will not reject any of the blessings of Allah. Also of the blessings narrated about Surah Al-Rahman is that this was the very first surah in the Quran, in, in Mecca, to be recited in public, in front of the Quraysh. The very first surah to be recited in public, in front of the Quraysh. It is mentioned in the books of Tafsir and the books of Sirah, so this is not a hadith, and therefore its chains are not as authentic. However, when it comes to narrations of history and narrations of Sirah, we don't have to be that strict, and the narrations of Sirah, by and large, are historical in nature and we don't really have you know we don't we're not that strict when it comes to hadith about stories of the sahaba and stories of the uh, life of the process in Mecca and whatnot so it is mentioned in the books of Sirah and Tafsir that the sahaba got together one day in Mecca and they said the Quraysh have never heard this Quran so who amongst us will go and recite it for them in public and so the young Yemeni shepherd, Ibn Mas'ud, volunteered. One of the earliest converts to Islam. He volunteered. And he said, I will recite. But they said to him, no, not you. We need someone who has family status so that his tribe will protect him. Ibn Mas'ud had no tribe in Mecca. Ibn Mas'ud was a... He was not a slave, he was a hired servant. He was like a uh, lower class, if you like. He was not Qurashi, he was not uh, of the elite, he was like an indentured servant type of thing. He was not a slave, but he's not also of the elite. And so, Ibn Mas'ud insisted and said, no, I want to have this honor of reciting the Qur'an the first. And so, uh, he did have a good voice, and as we know, he also had mastered the Qur'an. He was one of the few people that the Prophet ﷺ praised his Qur'an for, his recitation of the Qur'an for. And so they let him 
recite the Quran the first, and he went in front of the Kaaba and began reciting Surah Al-Rahman. Surah Al-Rahman. And when the Quraysh saw this, they went around him and they eventually beat him up and uh, he made him basically uh, bruised and kicked him and whatnot uh, until he finished the surah. But the point being, the first surah to be recited in front of the Kaaba in a loud voice, the first surah that was recited in Mecca publicly is Surah Ar-Rahman. And this shows us as well that Surah Ar-Rahman is a relatively early revelation. The very early revelation that it's the very first surah to have been uh, recited in public in Mecca. There is nothing authentic about why this surah was revealed. There doesn't seem to be any specific incident or story about why this surah was revealed. But some scholars have inferred this is not an actual story, it's not an actual incident. They've kind of sort of surmised, hypothesized that perhaps Allah revealed Surah Al Rahman. When the Quraysh questioned, who is Ar-Rahman? Because the Quraysh did not believe in the name Ar-Rahman. So when the Quraysh questioned, who is Ar-Rahman? That is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed Surah Ar-Rahman to answer the question to the Quraysh, who is Ar-Rahman? And some scholars point out that this surah might have been revealed as a response to the accusation that the Quran is taught by other humans. Now again, these are not actual stories. These are theories about why the surah might have been revealed. What are some of the circumstances? And of course, this is based on the content, right? <coughs> Sometimes scholars look at the content of the surah and they try to figure out why did Allah reveal this based on the content. There's no actual story. So, looking at the content, one theory is, it's answering who is Ar-Rahman. And another theory is, it's protecting the Prophet ﷺ from the charge, from the accusation, somebody else taught him. Ar-Rahman al-Allam al-Qur'an. Allah taught him the Qur'an. And we, we know that the Quraysh accused the Prophet ﷺ of fabrication, of somebody else teaching him the Qur'an, and the Qur'an references this, right? They say, another man teaches him the Qur'an. They say this, this Qur'an has been dictated to him. In the Qur'an we have this. Somebody is dictating him the Qur'an. And so Surah Al-Rahman came down to defend the Prophet ﷺ from this charge. From all of this, by the way, it's pretty clear that Surah Al-Rahman is a very early Meccan Surah. A very early Meccan Surah perhaps within the first 20 surahs to be uh, revealed. And therefore, this, uh, this shows us, and Surah al is characteristic of all the characteristics of the Madki surahs, short verses, eloquent, fiery eloquence, a lot of strong rhythm in it, uh, the issue of concentration on Tawheed and Risala and Akhirah. So all of the characteristics of Makki revelations are demonstrated in Surah Ar-Rahman. As for the names of Surah Ar-Rahman, Really, almost all the scholars of the past called it Surah Ar-Rahman. There doesn't seem to be multiple names for Surah Ar-Rahman. And in fact, even in all of these ahadith and these narrations from the Sahaba, it is called Surah Ar-Rahman. And so, pretty much, this is the unanimous mean a name that is given to Surah Ar-Rahman. Some have described it, not called it. Some have described Surah Ar-Rahman as being Arus al-Qur'an. 
عروس القرآن and عروس القرآن typically we would translate it as the bride of the Quran but that is not what عروس linguistically originally means عروس means uh, the most decorated or the most uh, you know uh, beautiful if you like and that is why a bride is called عروس because she is the most decked up in her entire life or so we hope uh, otherwise عروس linguistically doesn't mean bride عروس means that which is decorated or that which is beautified and so Surah Ar-Rahman has been called عروس Al-Quran meaning the most beautified portion of the Quran or this is like the most decorated portion of the Quran but this is a description it is not uh, a name of the Quran it is a description that some of the tabi'un that the tabi'un said of the uh, surah that this is عروس Al-Quran the entire surah as we understand from the very first ayah the whole surah is simply an explanation of who is Ar-Rahman. That is the theme of the surah. Every single ayah goes back directly to Ar-Rahman. It is as if the question was asked, who is Ar-Rahman? So Allah revealed Surah Ar-Rahman and he started off with Ar-Rahman and then the whole surah is simply a sharah or an explanation of who Ar-Rahman is. So because he is Ar-Rahman, he taught the Qur'an. Because he is Ar-Rahman, he created man. Because he is Ar-Rahman, he sent down justice. Because he is Ar-Rahman, he made the sun and the moon. <coughs> and so on and so forth. And this also explains the repetitive verse, This repetitive verse, which is obviously one of the most uh, striking features of Surah Ar-Rahman, it also explains the beginning of the surah as Ar-Rahman, meaning this is Ar-Rahman, he has given you so many blessings, Ala. Because he is Ar-Rahman, he has given you so many blessings. And yet you still refuse to acknowledge these blessings coming from him. You still reject the source of these blessings. You still belie and turn away. So the whole surah is a reminder that we need Allah's Rahmah that Allah's Rahmah surrounds us, we are created as a manifestation of Allah's Rahmah, and our salvation lies in accepting the source of that Rahmah, in acknowledging that Rahmah comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and therefore worshipping Him alone. This surah has two unique characteristics that no other surah in the Quran shares. Number one, it begins with the name of Allah. And no other surah begins with a name. The first word is Allah's name. Ar-Rahman. Just an, a verse by itself. Ar-Rahman. There is no other surah whose first verse is simply a name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is a big honor for the surah. Because no doubt the names of Allah are the most blessed uh, names. And they are the most blessed portions of the Quran as well. And number two, the second unique characteristic of the surah, which of course every single Muslim on the face of this earth knows, is which is repeated how many times? MashaAllah, how do you guys know? You took a class already? It's in the binder. Oh, okay, I didn't even know it's in the binder. MashaAllah. Very perceptive of you. 31 times. It is repeated 31 times. The famous verse that repeats itself 31 times. Now, <coughs> let us begin with our first uh, section of Surah Ar-Rahman. Ar-Rahman. This is how the Surah begins. And as we said, it is unique in the Quran. 
So these are the Muslim jinn, so these are the Muslim Sahaba of the jinn. Right? So he spent this verse that repeats itself 31 times. Now, <coughs> let us begin with our first uh, section of Surah Ar Rahman. Ar Rahman. This is how the Surah begins. And as we said, it is unique in the Quran as being the only Surah that begins with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the name of Ar-Rahman is unique, and it is perhaps the only other name besides the name Allah that is considered to be a direct pronoun that we call Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by frequently. Now what do I mean by this? All of Allah's names are pronouns. All of Allah's names, Ar-Rahim, Al-Malik, Al-Quddus, Al-Aziz, Al-Jabbar, they're all names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. However, there are two names that seem to be standing above the rest. And that is the name Allah and the name Ar-Rahman. That Allah uses the name Allah, the most common in the Quran, over 3,000 times the name Allah is used, by the way. Over 3,000 times in the Quran. And the name Ar-Rahman is also used completely independently. Usually Allah's names are linked with other names, as we said. Ghafoorul Rahim, Sami'un Alim, Aziz al Jabbar al Mutakabbir. But it is the name of Allah and the name of Ar Rahman that seem to be completely independent. And this is proven in many verses. The most blatant one or the most explicit one being, Rahman. Two explicit names. Call upon Allah or call upon Ar Rahman. These two names are definitely being given certain privileges, right? Or, for example, you were going to say Surah what? <coughs> Surah Maryam uses the, the uh, Rahman many times. You're right. Surah Maryam. But here, uh, for example, in Kullu Man Fis Samawati Wa Radi Illa Atil Rahman Abda. Everyone in the heavens and earth will come in front of Ar-Rahman as a servant. Notice, Allah is praising Himself by using this one name, Ar-Rahman. When He created the heavens and the earth, in every single instance that Allah says that He created the heavens and the earth and then He rose over the throne, He always says, Ar-Rahman ala al-Arsh istawa. He always calls Himself, Ar-Rahman ala al-Arsh istawa. Right? That's another deep point here that any time he mentions the creation and then the rising on the throne he chooses the name Ar-Rahman and therefore uh, and not just this I mean there's many other verses in the Quran uh, that mention for example the name Ar-Rahman as being somehow one of the most uh, you know primary characteristics if you like of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, by the way there's a point here Ar-Rahman uh, yesterday we talked about, uh, yeah, on Friday night, we talked about the muqatta'at and the position that sometimes the muqatta'at, one opinion was that these al-muqatta'at, huruf al-muqatta'at are the names of Allah. And from this, uh, Sa'id ibn Jubayr uh, said, and that was his opinion, that the, the muqatta'at are the names of Allah. He said that uh, Ar-Rahman is a conglomeration of Alif, Lam, Ra, Hamim, and Noom. Alif, Lam, Ra, Hamim, and Noon. Because his position was all of these huruf al-muqatta'at are the names of Allah. But frankly, that is not 
seems to be the most academic position, but yet that is one position that uh, did exist in the past. Uh, so the surah begins with uh, Ar-Rahman, and of course, and of course, this uh, name of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is one of the most common names in the Quran, and it actually occurs. The root of Ar-Rahman is Rahima, and from the same root, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala derives multiple names: Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, Ar-Hamul Rahimin. All of these are from the same root, Rahima. So at least three names are derived from the same root. And what is the difference between Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim? Ar-Rahman signifies that Allah by His divine nature is merciful. His, his nature is to be merciful. And Ar-Rahim means His actions are merciful. So Ar-Rahim signifies His actions. And Ar-Rahman signifies his very being, his that. So Allah is merciful by his nature, his essence is merciful. And that is why we can describe somebody as Rahim because sometimes his actions will be merciful. That we can never describe somebody as Rahman because no one is always merciful. So Ar-Rahman in one sense is higher than Ar-Rahim. And it is allowed to say certain names are higher or certain names are more powerful. Uh, this is another chapter we discussed this in darkness to no not darkness to light light of, did, I teach, did i teach light upon light i didn't teach light upon light in la san jose close enough no <laughs> in any case we did this uh, in the other class light upon light in any case ar-rahman and ar-rahim uh, as we know, are the two most the two most common names in the Quran. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So we said that one of the purposes of putting ar-Rahman at the beginning of the surah is to indicate what the whole surah is about, and to indicate that every single ayah is simply an explanation of who is ar-Rahman. Ar-Rahman ghalab al-Quran, khalaq al-insan, ghalabahu al-bayan. Notice here the beautiful tartib and order. The first manifestation of Ar-Rahman is that he taught the Qur'an. And then he created man, and then he taught him how to speak. The priorities are put into place. The Qur'an is far more important than our creation. The existence of the Qur'an is a greater manifestation of Allah's Rahmah than even our existence on this earth. The fact that religious guidance is more important than physical existence. Think about this. Religious guidance is more important than even our existence. Even though we existed before our knowledge of the Quran, we are born and then we are taught the Quran. Yet in terms of priority of blessings, the Quran takes precedence. So therefore, existence without guidance is an existence of cursedness. There's no blessing in existing without guidance. The only purpose of existing is if you have guidance. So the guidance is mentioned before the existence of man. Also, we learn from this that the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala <coughs> guides us through the Qur'an is more blessed and more noble 
than the fact that He feeds us and provides for us. A greater sign of Allah's blessings upon us is the Qur'an, and not our rizq and our air and our food and our drink. And from this we learn that it is not the sign of a true God to provide only the physical needs and ignore the spiritual ones. The spiritual ones have a higher precedence than the physical needs. Also, it is as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is hinting at the fact that even before He has created us, our methodology, our framework, our sharia, our aqidah has already been set and codified. And this is exactly what Allah says, Did man think we would leave him without any guidance? Did man think we'd create him and not have any, any guidance for him? And this is a refutation of those deists that used to be common. They are no longer common uh, that much, but they're still there. Uh, in fact, there was a recent survey done, uh, I think it was in England, uh, where the majority of people responded, uh, when it comes to religion, that they're spiritual but not religious. There's a new category now, right? They're spiritual but not religious. And what is happening, I mean this is a side point here, but what is happening is, wallahi, people have basically rejected organized religion, especially Christians have rejected Christianity. And yet their fitrah is still calling out for some God. They want to believe in something. And that's why their phrase is now, well, we're spiritual but not religious. Right? They don't want to go to church. They don't believe in these weird doctrines and everything. They don't like this stuff. But deep down inside, they want some acknowledgement of a divine. Right? And we'll like these are people ripe really for that one. This is really the, the, the most important category that we can concentrate on. Uh, they're more common in Europe. Obviously, here we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, Christianity is still flourishing compared to other uh, European lands. Uh, but there's a huge potential really for da'wah to reach out to them. And these are some of the things that we can use. That do you think that a God would create you, you, you feel spiritual, you feel there's some type of force or presence out there, right? And then he wouldn't tell you how to live. He'll take care of your daily needs. Every one of you is having his food, his drink, everything's just coming out of nowhere. And he wouldn't care about your reason for existence, your metaphysical needs, your spiritual needs, this is what the Qur'an is saying, Ar-Rahmanu Allam al-Qur'ana khalaq al-Insan. Notice as well the variation on the verbs, Allama al-Qur'an and khalaq al-Insan. He taught the Qur'an and he created man. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal and many of the early scholars of Islam, this was one of their main proofs that the Qur'an is uncreated. This is one of the main proofs that the Qur'an is uncreated. Now this is a controversy that used to happen a thousand, two hundred years ago, uh, and it lasted for around two, three hundred years. Uh, and these days it's all pretty much a dead controversy in that not many people are aware of it. But there was a notion of is the Qur'an created or uncreated? Is the Qur'an created or uncreated? And the standard Sunni position, in fact, this is really the birth of Sunni Islam. When they stood up to the Mu'tazilites and they said, no, we're not going to say the Qur'an is created. This was really the official, if you like, birth of Sunni Islam. Uh, and uh, Mu'tazilites, uh, and from the Mu'tazilites, the Ithna Ashari Shia and uh, the Zaydiyya and so many other groups, they, they still hold the position that the Qur'an is created. It's still their position to this day that the Qur'an is created. As for Sunnis, the standard fundamental position of Ahl al-Sunnah wal Jama'ah, the Qur'an is uncreated. And it is Kalamullah. It is the speech of Allah, غير مخلوق, it is not created. 
and we haven't, you guys haven't done light upon light, but we go into this in a lot of detail. And in fact, many of you wonder, what difference does it make to say it is created or uncreated? And in fact, it makes a big difference, and we see this difference right now amongst those who are progressives and those who are traditionalists. Progressive Muslims, by and large, uh, they follow the position that the Qur'an is created. When you say it is created, you're basically saying it's a human product. Uh, it's a human element is in there. And so you don't really need to follow every single verse in the Qur'an. Like the Bible, you, you, you gain the broad... What, Christians, all Christians today, how do they view the Old Testament? How do they view... It's like, generically, there's good in it, but you don't have to follow every single verse in the Old Testament, right? Even the most hardcore ultra-Orthodox Jews, they don't stone you on the Sabbath if you pick firewood. It's in the Old Testament. If you pick firewood on the Sabbath, you'll be stoned to death, right? Nobody follows this anymore. It's something they just... It's in there, in their books. And they want us to follow in their footsteps. As the Prophet said, you will follow their footsteps bit by bit. Everything they do, you will do. But the only way you can do this is to claim the Qur'an is not divine. The Qur'an has human elements in it. It is created, right? So when you open this door, then you can open the door for changing the Qur'an, accepting parts and rejecting parts. And, and this is very common. You hear this uh, amongst such Muslims. They say, you know, we have to follow the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law, right? We don't have to be so literal. Because the, the, their basic premise is the Qur'an is not Kalamullah ghayru makhluq. They don't hold this position, right? As for Ahl-Sunnah, Sunni Muslims, they say, no, the Qur'an is the actual Kalamullah. It is the uncreated Kalamullah. And there is, frankly, an element of divinity in it. And that is why we need to have wudu to touch the Mus'haf. That is why we have to respect the Mus'haf. That is why the majority position, I don't want to, don't want to go into a long tangent of fiqh here, that women in their menses or men in their janaba cannot recite the Qur'an. This is uh, this respect that is shown to the Qur'an itself. That the Qur'an has that ihtiram. The Qur'an has that respect that needs to be given uh, to it. So this is one of the fundamental evidences that Imam Ahmad used. That Allah said, عَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنِ خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانِ He didn't say, خَلَقَ الْقُرْآنَ خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانِ عَلَّمَ And Allah's ilm, is it makhluq or ghair makhluq? Allah's ilm is eternal. Correct? Allah's ilm is eternal. And so the Qur'an comes from Allah's ilm. عَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنِ Right? And then, خَلَقَ insan. So this is a theological point that uh, was used by the early scholars. The choice of verbs here. Also notice that عَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنِ He does not mention who did he teach the Qur'an to. It simply says, I taught the Qur'an. And he doesn't mention whom because it is for all of mankind. So there's no need to put a condition. Who did he teach it to? عَلَّمَ Quran unconditionally. The Quran is taught for anybody who wants it. It is his for the uh, taking. عَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنَ خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانَ عَلَّمَهُ الْبَيَانِ He taught man how to speak. He taught man the art of eloquence. And bayan is not just kalam. Bayan is eloquent kalam. Bayan is eloquent kalam. Kalam is talk. And bayan is eloquence, right? And <coughs> the issue of speech <coughs> is another amazing facet of human life. And it is what separates us from the animals and from the other creations. No other creation has bayan. 
Yes, some of the creation has elements of kalam, by the way. But no creation has bayan from amongst the animal world. From amongst this dunya that is around us. As for other worlds and dunyas, Allah knows. But in this dunya around us, the animals that we know, no animal creation and species has bayan. But they do have some kalam, by the way. You guys following this? Animals can communicate to one another. The Quran tells us animals can communicate, does it not? The ant, the hudhud, Quran tells us they're communicating. But bayan is a level of communication above mere careful there's an enemy and there's food over here. You know, that's how the animals talk to each other, right? And uh, we are, there's a whole science of, uh, in biology dealing with animal communication. And especially they've done a lot of research on whales, by the way. Right? They've actually recorded whale speech and they're trying to decipher it, which I don't think they'll ever be able to do because it's a whole different, you know, how do we expect us to understand? But they've discovered that whales communicate with each other over 15, 20 miles away. You know, they'll send uh, deep sonar waves, basically, or deep, you know, uh, intonations or whatever, and they're communicating, we're over here, or whatever their communication is, uh, and they're recording these speeches, and they can find patterns from different whales in different places. They're finding patterns of speech, right? So, kalam exists amongst animals, but bayan does not exist. And bayan is <coughs> a level of speech that is much higher than kalam, and this is really civilization, I mean, arts, poetry, uh, writing in detail, not just survival, grunting and groaning, not just the basics of living, which is what the animals do, but actual civilization, history, arts, science, writing journals, right? This is bayan, allamahul bayan. And this shows us that speech and bayan is perhaps the greatest gift that Allah has given us of this dunya above the other animals. Of course, the greatest gift is Iman of the spiritual world. From this world, from the physical things, perhaps the greatest blessing Allah has given us is the blessing of Bayan. Now, if somebody were to say, hold on a sec, I have been taught that the best blessing that Allah has given us is that of Aql, of intellect. The response is, and how can you have Bayan without Aql? And bayan is a higher level even than aql. So by referencing bayan, aql is automatically included. Because you cannot write poetry without aql. You cannot record history. You cannot analyze. You cannot speak like we speak without aql. And so bayan is in fact a higher order than aql itself. And if somebody were to say, I thought one of the blessings Allah has given us over the creatures is that of free will. That we are not robots or we are not just answering to the calls of nature, we actually can do other things. Once again we say, bayan is an indication of this as well. Both aql and both volition or free will are incorporated in the concept of bayan. So these factors and more are incorporated in the blessing of eloquent uh, speech. Speech incorporates intelligence. You need to be conscious and thinking in order to speak. And speech also incorporates the capacity of free will, the capacity of thinking beyond what your physical needs are. Because animals only think of their physical needs. That's it. 
Animals, that's the only aql they have is survival and food and procreation. That's all aql they have, right? They don't have civilization. So, bayan is that one element that combines all of these blessings in its greatest manifestation. And of course, uh, bayan, Allah Azza wa Jal taught it to Adam directly. We taught Adam the names of everything. We taught Adam how to speak. This is the stronger interpretation of what this verse means. And by the way, the science of linguistics and the science of speech, uh, evolutionary biologists and all of those who do not believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they have no explanation for where speech came from. Because they know we are the only species that speaks. They know this. And there is no explanation biologically why would man be different than all other creatures. If we truly are linked in the exact same way as they are saying that we are linked, there are a number of things that are unique to us that no other animal species possesses. We are light years ahead of other species. Like the distance between us and them cannot even be compared. And the number one issue that demonstrates this is bayan. And people, scientists are amazed, like what is going on? That why does human, why do humans have this knack or talent? Where did it come from? And one would imagine if evolutionary biology were true, that we would find rudimentary languages in apes and in chimpanzees and, you know, uh, a few accents and other creatures. You know what I'm saying? This would be the case. But the fact of the matter is there's nothing equivalent. We are completely unique in this regard. That's not the only thing we're unique in, by the way. There are other things that we're unique in, such as... What else is completely unique in us? Standing erect, but there were hominids that stood erect. Vision? Every creature has vision. Most, most creatures have better vision than we do. Bats and dogs are far better in their, uh, in their precision, even though the color perhaps we have, but they don't have. But in terms of precision, the eagles, you can't beat eagle vision, yes. I didn't understand that was. Okay, the recognition of the self, yes. You have something else back here? The opposable thumb. The opposable thumb, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Writing's a big deal. Huh? Writing. 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 But this comes under bayan too, by the way. But yes, writing. The, the main thing, by the way, uh, close to what you're saying, or maybe you were intending this, I don't know. Haya. It is called... Haya. Haya. Um, Haya. I don't know if that's totally unique. No doubt. Okay, one thing that is unique to us is clothes. That's clearly the case. One thing that is unique is clothes. And by the way, Allah mentions in the Quran, we were the ones who sent clothes down to you. Right? But the thing that I'm thinking of is the fancy schmancy term is metacognition. And metacognition means the realization that you have knowledge and the knowledge of your knowledge. Like the fact that you can situate yourself, as you're trying to say maybe in this regard, or you, you can study yourself. No species studies itself or studies the other creation. Right? The fact that you have knowledge about knowledge and you can analyze your own knowledge 
that is something that is just beyond what any animal has, right? Now, by the way, if you listen to my talk about evolution that I gave in England, the debate that I gave, so these are some of the points that I brought up uh, that uh, really we can kind of use to say the theory of evolution does have some really, really, really big questions it cannot answer. And this is where our religion does give us, because all of these things are explicitly mentioned in the Quran, right? Clothing and bayan and all this very explicitly mentioned in the Quran that Allah gave it to us. And this is not something that evolutionary biology could just come forth with. In any case, back to, I'm not a biologist, let's get back to Ar-Rahman. Addamahu al-bayan. Bayan is speech, eloquent speech. And interestingly enough, <coughs> bayan comes right after Allama al-Qur'an. I mean, Allama al-Qur'an al bayan And the Qur'an means recited speech. And bayan is spoken speech. It is as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referencing that He only taught us bayan in order to recite the Qur'an. There's a linkage between the Qur'an and bayan because what does Qur'an mean? The recitation, that which is recited, right? And bayan is speech as well. So there is an element of the bayan is there for the Qur'an. The bayan has been given to you in order that you recite the Qur'an and understand the Qur'an. Because the exact meaning of Qur'an is that which is qara'a, that which is recited. And also, uh, Qatada, for example, says about this issue, Allah taught him bayan so that he could teach him the halal and the haram through the Qur'an, basically. The bayan has been linked to the Qur'an. Through the bayan, now that you know bayan, you can understand the Qur'an. Now, also from the very beginning, one of the key motifs of Surah Al-Rahman, or not motif is in the word I'm looking for, one of the key, if you like, styles of Surah Al-Rahman is set forth, and that is duality. Surah Rahman has a clear duality. Two things are mentioned. عَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنَ خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانِ Right? الشَّمْسُ وَالْقَمَرِ النَّجْمُ وَالشَّجَرِ السَّمَاءَ الْمِزَانِ And then, فَبِأَيِّ أَلَارَبِكُ تُكَلْمَانِ is dual as well. The whole surah has this duality. Two always being mentioned. And so the tone of the surah begins in duals, but the only thing that is not dual is the first verse, Ar-Rahman. It's as if there is a hinting here that the only thing that is unique is Allah. Everything else has pairs or more than pairs. The only being that is unique is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The sun and the moon is paired. The skies and the scales are paired. Man and jinn is paired. And the rest of the surah, فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكُمَا Dual. تُكَذِّبَانِ Dual. Creation is paired. Dual. But the only thing that is not paired, or the only being, that is not paired, is Ar-Rahman. And so the uniqueness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is manifested over here. عَلَّمَهُ الْبَيَانِ الشَّمْسُ وَالْقَمَرُ بِحُسْبَانِ The sun and the moon are in perfect harmony. Husban. By the way, we're going to notice that Surah Yasin and Surah Rahman have a lot of overlap in terms of meaning. And many concepts are actually found in both surahs. And of them is here, الشَّمْسُ وَالْقَمَرُ بِحُسْبَانِ that's exactly what Allah says, right? 
Right? Neither can the sun outreach the moon, nor can the day outstrip the night. So, الشمس والقمر بحسبان. Husban means perfect clockwork. Everything is in order. Hisab. Husban. Everything is in perfect harmony. Such massive objects. And why we think, take this for granted. We set our clocks to the movements of the sun and moon. Think about it, right? Our time is exactly linked to the motion of these massive objects. Who has the power? I mean, our clocks are set by their time, not the other way around, right? That's how powerful and precise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation is. Ashamsu al qamaru bihusna. Down to a millisecond. Now we know uh, that, you know, when, for example, uh, um, the sun will rise, the sun will set. We know uh, when there's going to be an eclipse. We know it down to a millisecond. It's so perfect. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clarifies. الشَّمْسُ وَالْقَمَرُ بِحُسْبَانِ Everything is in sync. Everything is in uh, harmony. And our calendars. It's as if Allah is referencing our worldly calendars. The solar calendar is upon the shams, the lunar calendar is upon the uh, qamar. And were it not for these celestial objects and the rotations of the night and the day, we would not have any sense of time. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us with time. And He's allowed us the alternations of the night and the day, and even the alternations of the seasons. The seasons in the, uh, in the year, all of this is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَالنَّجْمُ وَالشَّجَرُ يَسْجُدَانِ وَالنَّجْمُ وَالشَّجَرُ يَسْجُدَانِ The word najm has two meanings to it. The first is the meaning all of you are familiar with and that is the stars. And so from this meaning Allah is saying the stars and the trees, the highest of the high and the lowest of the low, are all prostrating to Allah. And this of course is a clarification of yesterday's talk. When we said the sun is prostrating, so yes, everything is in prostration. So the first meaning, a najm is the stars, and shajar, of course, is the trees. However, najm also has another meaning in the Arabic language, and najm also means the, the plantations and vegetations that don't go above the ground. They're what we call in English vines, let's say. This is also najm. And both meanings are completely valid. And they give very complementary meanings. If we take Najm to mean the stars, Allah is saying the stars all the way up there and the trees down here are all prostrating. And if we take Najm to mean the vines on the ground, so Allah is saying that which is on the ground and the tallest of the trees, everything is prostrating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In both cases, there's a contrast. But in the first, the trees become the low. In the second, the trees become the high. And this is the beauty of the Quran. وَالنَّجْمُ وَالشَّجَرُ يَسْجُدَانِ So it is as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that everything in the heavens and earth, that which we cannot reach to that which sprouts from below us, all of it are prostrating to Him. And if they are prostrating to Him, then obviously they are doing other types of praise as well. As Allah says in the Quran, there is not a single thing in the creation. And means completely, there is nothing in the creation 
illa yusabbihu bihamdihi except that it is praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but you do not understand that praise so this also demonstrates as we said yesterday that everything has a type of consciousness and that's something that uh, as I said there is a theory in modern science uh, that does talk about some type of consciousness even to the inanimate objects and this is something the Quran seems to very explicitly uh, suggest and the skies he has raised it up and he has placed al-mizan now mizan here Generally, mizan is used for scales. However, the meaning here is not just the scales. The meaning here, what do scales represent? It represents justice. It represents justice. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referencing the fact that He is the one who has placed justice. He has set up justice. That the world runs on justice. Why has He put justice? That you do not act unjustly, you do not transgress beyond mizan. And so that you may establish justice with truth, with equity. And that you do not cheat the justice, you do not unbalance the uh, scales. Now, again, the point is. Uh, the verse could be translated as literally scales being literal, but frankly, this is a very short-sighted meaning. Allah is also being, if you like, uh, metaphorical here that the purpose of the mizan is justice. And by the way, uh, the word uh, justice comes from qistas, which is bilqist over here. Uh, qistas uh, is a Latinized origin. Uh, Eustace and it was taken by the Arabs and they made it Qistas and from Latin it also entered into English and we call it justice So the word Qistas and the English word justice are actually directly linked together by the same root and the root is a Latin root and it is Eustace But nonetheless That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning the very essence of the creation, according to what Allah has said, is that there shall be justice, there shall be truth. And there is a literal and a symbolic meaning here. Literal is that, of course, when you have a mizan, be fair in it, be just in it. But of course, symbolically, uh, Allah Azza is saying that there has to be justice uh, operated. And of course, we know that the uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran that he has sent down justice. The justice is a part of our fitrah. Everybody wants to live according to laws and according to justice. And that is why, uh, as Ibn Taymiyyah says, <coughs> that very famous passage and oft quoted in our times, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses a kingdom, even if it is kafir, if it is a just kingdom. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes away barakah, even from a Muslim land, if the kingdom and the country is unjust. And this is something, wallahi, modern reality shows that those countries that operate with a sense of justice and a sense of, uh, uh, of uh, equality and openness, there are certain worldly blessings they have been given. And those lands that are corrupt and have no justice or little justice, we find barakah taken away from them. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that of his rahmah and of the manifestations of his rahmah is that he has revealed justice 
for us in order for us to live by. And the earth, he has set it up. He has placed it. He has put it into place. Now, notice here how both of the uh, sentences begin with the nouns. Right? And the beauty here, the sama, he has raised it up. And the earth, he has put it down. There's an opposite being uh, given here. And the beauty is very clear. Uh, and obviously we all know, even those who don't understand Arabic, when we listen to Surah Ar-Rahman, we can sense the beauty of the surah. It is definitely one of the most powerful Meccan surahs in terms of its rhythm and in terms of its uh, rhyme. Uh, rhyme. And the world, the earth, uh, he has created it or set it up. Wada'aha means to put it in order, set it in place. He has done it for anam. And anam is the creation. And primarily the reference here is for man and jinn. And from this we learn, and the Quran is very explicit about this point. The Quran is very explicit about this point. That... Allah has created the creation for us. He has created for you all that is in this world. The rest of the creation, it has been subjugated to us as a blessing for us and a test for us. And this is a clear refutation for those who believe that, and this is of course the extreme madhab of the vegans and uh, the vegetarians who say that we cannot eat animals because we are on par with them. There are third cousins once removed basically, right? That's basically the, the premise, you know, that we cannot eat animals because all of this creation we are also like them, right? What right do we have to take advantage of these other creatures? And wallahi, from their usul, this is solid. If you truly believe in those theories, they are coming from a solid background. It makes sense. If you are but one animal like all other animals, then why should you take advantage of other animals, right? And it does make sense. But the Quran is very clear. Our order of structure is totally different. And Allah has told us, He has created cattle for us. He has created animals for us. He has created livestock for us. He has created the world for us. And therefore, we do have a, uh, a type of right or privilege that the other animals do not have. And this is very clear here. We'll just do two more ayat and then a break. In it are fruits. And we said yesterday, what does fakiha mean? Every type of fruit. Not just apples. Every type of fruit. And out of all of the fruits, the one fruit that is mentioned specifically right now is a nakhl, date palms. And once again, we are emphasized that the Quran praises dates like it praises nothing else. And the Prophet doesn't praise dates like he praises nothing else. And in fact, he said in the hadith in Sahih Bukhari, there is a tree that is the symbol of a Muslim. And it is the date. The date is the symbol of a Muslim, he said. 
And therefore, there is no doubt that the date tree is we consider to be the most blessed tree out of all the trees. And the most blessed fruit out of all the fruits. It is a symbol of Islam, it is a symbol of a Muslim, and that is the date tree. And uh, no doubt, science will continue to tell us more and more benefits of uh, the dates, but uh, we know that dates are indeed of the most beneficial fruits. And so Allah says, So in it are fruits and date palms, that means possessing. And akmam is the plural of kim, and kim means covering. So the dates are covering, the dates are shade, the dates are shelter. So in it are fruits and date palms that have much shelter in them. Because especially in Medina, the date palms acted as the primary source of shelter. So the date palms are zatul akmam. They are providing you shelter. They're giving you uh, uh, opportunity to live in this desert because they give you that shelter. Walhab and hab here means the seeds. Hab is seeds. So all types of seeds. So Allah is referencing the, the whole category of seeds. Dhu means possessing. Dhu and that are basically of the same thing. Zu is the masculine, that is the feminine, uh, and the same thing, the, the ones possessing. You could say apostrophe S in English is similar to this, right? The seeds that possess, Zu. The seeds that possess what? Al-Asf and Al-Rayhan. Now there are like 10 different positions about Asf and Rayhan, but frankly all of them are pretty much, you know, they're, they're basically saying the same thing, uh, and they're contrasting one another the stalks and the leaves, or the trunk and the fruits, or the leaves and the flowers, or the leaves and the fruits, and, or that which is eaten, that which is not eaten, or the stalk and uh, the flower. In other words, asf could be the trunk, and rayhan could be the fruit, or asf could be the stalk, and rayhan could be the leaves. But the point being, two primary elements of the tree is being discussed. That Allah is saying, this seed, al-habb, what does it give you? The small little seed, it produces this massive tree, Dhul Asfi, and that's the trunk. And Rayhan, the most correct position Allah knows best, it is the fruit. And it is called Rayhan because it comes from that which is fragrant. Rayhan is that which is fragrant, right? That's why some scholars said Rayhan is the flowers, which nothing wrong with this as well, okay? The Quran allows for all of these meanings, right? But the point is that this small seed will give you, what will it give you? It's in your hand, it fits, but what will it give you? Dhul Asfi, give you a massive trunk, be bigger than this room. And War Rayhan, it will give you flowers and produce and leaves. All of this will come, and remember, all, remember every single ayah, I don't need to re-emphasize, every ayah goes back to Ar-Rahman. He is Ar-Rahman because he's done this. This is a sign of his Rahman. Right. Every ayah goes back directly to who is Ar-Rahman? He is the one who has made the world. He is the one who has put flowers, fakiha. He is the one who has given you fruits and seeds. All of this goes back to Ar-Rahman. And then we do the very last ayah before our break. We have to get to this ayah obviously. Then we'll break. The linguistic analysis is very straightforward. Fa means therefore. It's a rhetorical response. 
And in English, we can say, basically, it's as if Allah is saying, now that you've understood this point, what will, this is the fahir, therefore, now that you've understood you've understood you've understood therefore, in light of all that has preceded, fa, this is just the fahir, which one of, which one of, and ala comes from the word ilyun or the word ulyun, same thing, ilyun or ulyun, which means blessings or favors. Ilyun or ulyun means a blessing or a favor, a ni'mah, something you benefit from. And there is a hadith that I referenced to you yesterday. Tafakkaru fi ala illahi wa la tafakkaru fi illahi. Think about the Allah of Allah and don't think about Allah. Remember somebody asked a question and I referenced this yesterday. Tafakkaru fi Allah illah. Think about Allah. So the Prophet used it. And Allah means, as we said, blessings or favors. And don't think about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This hadith is recorded in Al-Bayhaqiz Shu'ab. Now, <coughs> In the form ala, in the form ala, the only time it occurs in the Quran is in Surah Al Rahman. <coughs> the Surah Al Rahman. In this verse, I mean. However, there are some similar things, some similar phrases in the Quran. Uh, this verse is unique for Surah Rahman. Nothing like this occurs in the Quran. But there's two similar uh, verses. The first of them is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks in Surah Al-Najm فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكَ تَتَمَارَى فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكَ تَتَمَارَى This is Surah Al-Najm verse 55. So which of the blessings of your Lord are you going to argue with each other about? تَتَمَارَى Argue with each other. And the second uh, verse that has the phrase Allah alone without this whole verse is Surah A'raf verse 69. Surah A'raf verse 69 where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says وَذْكُرُوا إِجْعَلَكُمْ قُلَثَانِ بَعْدِ قَوْمِ نُوحٍ وَزَادَكُمْ فِي الْخَلْقِ بَسْطَةِ فَذْكُرُوا آلَاءَ اللَّهِ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِحُونَ فَذْكُرُوا آلَاءَ اللَّهِ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِحُونَ This is Hud talking to his people. Remember, فَذْكُرُوا Remember the blessings of Allah upon you if you wish to be successful. Remember the blessings of Allah upon you if you wish to be successful. These are the only other times that the phrase ala occurs in the Qur'an. But the sentence, As you should know, it is the only time in Surah Ar-Rahman. Now, So which of the favors or blessings of رَبِّكُمَا The dual. Now there is no dual in English as you know, you have single and you have plural. You all know Arabic has the dual, single, dual, plural, right? Uh, and so Rabbikuma, the both of your lords, the both of whose lords? What's the dual a reference to? There's a lot of discussion here, but the obvious reference which the whole surah suggests and the context of recitation suggests is man and jinn. This is the obvious meaning of duality. Rabbikuma, man and jinn. And this is proven by the very next verse 
which we're going to do after the break, Khalaq al-Insan and uh, Anjan. Insan and Jan are mentioned. And also the fact that the Prophet chose this surah to recite to the jinn clearly demonstrates the duality is for man and jinn. But of course, as usual, there are a lot of interpretations. Some say men and women. So the duality is men and women. Some say Muslim and non-Muslim. Uh, some say that no, in fact, there is no duality. This is simply a technique of Arabic that sometimes duality is mentioned to draw emphasis to duality is mentioned to draw emphasis to the sentence. And this is in fact technically valid. Any of you have studied Mu'allaqat al-Sabah? A single soul has studied Mu'allaqat al-Sabah. The very first phrase of the Mu'allaqat al-Sabah. Qifa nabki min dhikra habibin. Qifa. Duality. In any case, the point being that duality is sometimes used to indicate emphasis. So the point here, there is no real duality. It's simply to emphasize the uh, point. Uh, and of course, it's even in the Quran, by the way. Al-Qiyafi Jahannam. It's even in the Quran. The concept of duality for emphasis. Al-Qiyafi Jahannam. Both of you throw in, but there is no both. It's a, a, a generic. And so in this case, basically, it is a reminder. In any case, the strongest position, the duality, is men and jinn. So, which of the favors of your Lord, O men and jinn? Kadhaba means to consider false, to reject, to belie. And kadhaba means, in the Quran, is used commonly to those who reject the prophets. Kadhaba, so and so, the prophets. The Quraysh, yukadhibunaka. They consider you to be false, they reject you. And to kadhiban, once again in the duel, both of you are denied. There are many types of tukadhiban. And a number of scholars, such as Ibn Qayyim and others, mention three types of kadhaba, three types of denying. Number one, to deny that Allah has given you this blessing. And this is the worst denial. You ascribe it to other than Allah. This is the worst type of kadhaba. So you say, or the pagans say, Allah did not give this to us, another being gave it to us. Or the Hindus say, Rama gave it to us. Or the The Buddhists say so and so. Or atheists say it just came out of nowhere. This is tukadhiba. This is a rejection of Allah giving you this blessing. An example of this in the Quran is Qarun, who says, I got this money. Or the person of the two gardens, who said, This is mine. I got it. And this is tukadhiba, you're rejecting that Allah gave it to you. And the second is the type of tukadhiban that the Quraysh were guilty of. And that is to acknowledge that Allah has given it, but to worship other than Allah for it. And this is the height of stupidity and foolishness. To know Allah gave it to you, but you're still going to worship Allah and Al-Uzza or other than God. This is a type of tukadhiban. That you're rejecting the thanks and not 
the originator, right? You acknowledge Allah gave it, but then you worship other than Allah. And then the third type of tukadiban, which is to acknowledge that Allah gave it, and to acknowledge that Allah is worthy of being thanked, but then to fall short of thanking Him. And this is the state of many Muslims. This is the state of many Muslims. That they don't deny Allah gave, nor do they deny that Allah is worthy of being thanked. But they do not actually thank Him the way He deserves to be thanked. They do not actually thank Him the way that He deserves to be thanked. So which of the blessings of your Lord with the both of you end up to Kathiban? And to Kathiban, as we said, has all three of these meanings. Now, one final point. This verse is repeated, as we all know, 31 times in the surah. And it is a unique surah in that no other surah in the Quran has such a repetitive verse. After every ayah or every second ayah, it occurs. And each time it occurs after Allah has mentioned a favor or a potential punishment or a promised reward. 31 times. The famous Indian scholar, Siddiq Hassan Khan, and this shows us, subhanAllah, that uh, Siddiq Hassan Khan is relatively recent. He died 110 years ago, very recently, in the grand scale of things. And he gave a fa'idah that I have not found anywhere else. And it shows us that subhanAllah tafsir is an ongoing process. But you can always discover some new meanings. Sadiq Hassan Khan wrote a very brief commentary of the Quran, very small tafsir of the Quran compared to other tafsirs. And he brought forth a fa'idah that I have not found in any other book before him. And he says that Allah mentions Rabbikum 31 times. The first eight of them, he's analyzed it, the first eight of them follow Allah's blessings in this world. Then come seven that follow Allah's punishments and threats. And then come eight as the description of the highest levels of Jannah. And then come another eight as a description of the lower levels of Jannah. We'll quickly do the math that gives us how much 31 31 right I repeat the first eight of them follow Allah's blessings in this world then come seven that are mentioned after threats of punishment and then there are eight and eight eight for the higher levels of Jannah and then eight for the lower levels of Jannah uh, the higher and lower levels we'll talk about later on today. There seems to be a clear higher level and lower level, right? Uh, there's a higher level of Jannah and then there's a lower level of Jannah. So there's eight and eight for both of these uh, levels. And there's much wisdom in this because the seven that are mentioned after threats of Allah's punishments, Jahannam has seven doors. And Jannah has eight doors. And Allah Azza wa emphasizes His Jannah twice to make it 16. To emphasize His Rahmah is more than the punishment. And so, He concludes, whoever fears Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
will enter through all of these eight, the higher eight, and those eight, the lower eight, and be saved from the previous seven. That whoever truly fears Allah and acknowledges right? He acknowledges this, he shall enter through the first eight and the second eight and be saved from the previous seven, i.e. the uh, doors of Jahannam. And with that, we give you guys your break for now. We've got two